It's a great pleasure for me to be back at Columbia, and I see my old friend Jack Dalton here, which is, makes it a double pleasure to be here this evening. Through, through much of the 19th century, a native Vermonter was at the center of the immense growth of the American collections in what was then the British Museum Library. Today, a hundred years later, a group of Americans is working to enable the British Library, which is successor to the British Museum Library, to expand its American holdings for the period from the 1880s to the 1950s. During this period, the acquisitions from the United States were seriously inadequate for a great research library. Henry Stevens of Vermont was the earlier hero. Uh, today, the American Trust for the British Library strives to carry on what Stevens termed his labor of love. As we shall see, the far-sightedness of one man and the indefatigable industry of another created in the British Museum Library an astonishingly large and varied collections of American publications from the beginnings of life in the colonies nearly through the 1880s. Such a rate of expansion was not to be seen again until after the Second World War. The strength of the early collections is an abiding monument to two striking mid-19th century figures whose close association was phenomenally productive. They were, of course, Antonio, later Sir Anthony Panizzi, the Italian political refugee who was to become the greatest of British librarians, and Henry Stevens of Vermont, whose assiduous bibliographic labors and business acumen enriched great library collections on both sides of the Atlantic. Panizzi first joined the museum staff in 1831 as an extra assistant librarian assigned to catalog, of all things, a collection of French Revolution pamphlets. Only six years later, he was promoted to be keeper of the Department of Printed Books, which is to say, head of the library of the British Museum. Immediately, he began his unremitting drive to create the first truly encyclopedic national library, a monumental effort that was to continue unabated through more than 30 years until his retirement as principal librarian, that is, head of the entire museum, in 1866. In 1845, Panizzi issued a revolutionary report which he entitled On the Collection of Printed Books at the British Museum, Its Increase and Arrangement. Here he called for the creation, I quote him, of a public library giving the necessary means of information on all branches of human learning from all countries in all languages. For such a cosmic collecting aims to be stated for a national library was needless to say unparalleled and reflected Panizzi's magnificent hopes for the library. Hopes that once realized were to lay the foundation for one of the world's greatest cultural institutions. Providentially, it was in July of that same year, 1845, that young Henry Stevens of Vermont arrived in London, fresh from Yale and the Harvard Law School, and with two years' experience as a fledgling bibliographer and book dealer. Armed with an introduction to Panizzi from Jared Sparks, Stevens presented himself at once, and so began a friendship, indeed a partnership, that was to last until Sir Anthony's death in 1879. 
Stevens had come to London with buying commissions from John Carter Brown, James Lennox, and other American collectors, and with orders from the Connecticut and Rhode Island Historical Societies to transcribe relevant documents in British archival collections. While carrying out these assignments, he began assessing the American holdings in the British Museum, just as he had done a few years earlier in the Harvard Library. The results were, first, a request by Panizzi to prepare a list of American lacunae in the museum library, and then a subsequent, commission, a subsequent commission to supply them. The moment was opportune, for in January of 1846, Panizzi obtained from the British Treasury the first of the annual grants of 10,000 pounds, a prodigious amount at that time, specifically for the acquisition of foreign and antiquarian materials, grants that were to continue for 40 years. Thus it was possible for Panizzi to launch the young American enthusiast on his unprecedented buying campaign. Panizzi asked Stevens, quote, to sweep America for us as you have done London for America. Stevens was instructed, and here I'm quoting Stevens, to ascertain what books the museum officials have relating to America and what American literature they have, and then to furnish them with everything they have not. For example, all historical works, general and local, even to all the little histories of churches and parishes, all school books, theology, sciences, belles lettres, reports, laws, all public documents of the general government, as well as all those of the individual states. All periodical literature, topography, Indians, etc. In short, all American books of all kinds. Panizzi even stressed the importance of newspapers in historical study, a concept that was far in advance of most of his contemporaries. He also insisted on collecting the official documents of foreign governments and in consequence, Stevens persuaded the United States government to present to Britain all its official publications. As a result, the British Library holdings of U.S. government documents since the mid-19th century are remarkably comprehensive. It is a matter of interest today that 1983 marks the centennial of the Anglo-American Official Agreement for the full exchange of government publications between the two nations, an agreement that was reached after years of negotiation insistently pressed by Henry Stevens and Antonio Panizzi. Stevens was so energetic and so effective a dealer that by the end of 1846, his first year of buying for the museum, he had sold 10,000 American books to the library. By 1866, 20 years later, when Panizzi retired, Stevens had placed more than 100,000 volumes there, and the collection of American books in the British Museum Library was acknowledged to be the best in the world. 20 years later, just before the grants for the purchase of foreign books were seriously cut, Henry Stevens, who knew well libraries on both sides of the Atlantic, was to be unchallenged in, the sta in his statement that the British Museum, quote, contains today probably the largest and best collection in existence of American history and literature. 
10 years after Stevens commenced acquiring books for the British Museum Library, he compiled and published, entirely at his own expense, a catalog of all publications printed in America that were in the library at Christmas, 1856. Whereas there had been a thousand American publications in the museum library in 1845, the number had now risen to 20,000 in that decade. The catalog of this collection, including supplements covering Canadian and other North American imprints, Spanish-American and West Indian books, and American maps, was a mammoth undertaking for one individual, however energetic, and it still is valuable in the study of the 19th century book trade. It is a nice reminder of the romantic eccentricity of Stevens, as well as of his adoration for Antonio Panizzi, to recall his dedication of this catalog, and here I must take a very long breath. He writes, to the seven Italians who by their intelligent enterprise in foreign countries achieved the lasting remembrance and gratitude of America, this volume is earnestly and reverently inscribed. To Christopher Columbus of Genoa, who gave a new world to Castile and Leon. To John Cabot, the Venetian, who planted the flags of St. Mark and St. George side by side on the new continent. To Amerigo Vespucci, whose name given to the new hemisphere is a perpetual memorial of that enterprising Florentine. To Peter Martyr of Anguilla, whose letters and decades comprise the first history of America. To John Verrazzano of Florence, who in the service of France checkmated Spain in her grasping policy west of the line of demarcation. To Jerome Benzoni of Milan, who published the first book of travels in America after a residence there of 14 years. And last, not least, to Antonio Panizzi of Brescello of the University of Parma and of the British Museum, who, while keeper of the Department of Printed Books, fully alive to the importance of the subject and the necessity of collecting the literature of new countries while there was a reasonable probability of securing it with tolerable completeness and lest the literary acquisitions in all foreign languages might together dwarf those in the English, initiated the unrivaled collection of American books described in this catalog. It was possible then with pains and economy to form the nucleus of such a department for the National Library of England. An opportunity now passed. To these Italians, therefore, is due the sevenfold homage of Americans, and especially from one who has made American history and American literature his lifelong study. Henry Stevens of Vermont, London, the 4th of July, 1865. Early on in his profitable love affair with the British Museum Library, Henry Stevens who also styled himself the Green Mountain Boy, wrote on 3 April 1846 to Charles Coffin Jewett, librarian then of Brown University. And in this letter, his eagerness for his new task is nowhere more enthusiastically stated. And he wrote to, to Jewett, what a noble undertaking, what a, what a powerful influence such a collection of American literature will have on the British character. It will have a tendency to soften down his prejudice against our country by enlightening his ignorance and will thereby greatly facilitate his return to moderation, modesty, and charity. On the other hand, Uncle Samuel will by no means be a loser for these silent messengers will awaken John's fraternal regard. Remember when this was written. Yet another source of strength 
in 19th century American publication derived from Panizzi's drive. His relentless efforts in pressing for effective legal provision for copyright deposit resulted in the passage by Parliament of the Imperial Copyright Act in 1842. After the new law was on the books, however, enforcement was indifferent until 1850 when Panizzi obtained from the museum trustees their power of attorney in this matter. Thenceforth, owing to his characteristically assiduous enforcement of the law, acquisitions through legal deposit rose steadily. In 1851, the books received by deposit numbered just under 10,000. Seven years later, there were nearly 20,000. This was especially important as a means of acquiring American publications for many books issued here uh, were, and, and reprinted, republished in Britain, were subject to the British copyright deposit. Furthermore, this became even more significant when funds for buying foreign books were drastically reduced in the 1880s, after which some Americans still continued to arrive. Notwithstanding this advantage, however, it must be remembered that copyright did not bring to the library in London thousands of important United States publications as well as whole categories of American works that had not also been published in Britain. For example, local history, secondary belles lettres, and learned society publications, not to mention, of course, journals and newspapers. The 40 years of Panizzi's vast program for expanding the collections of foreign publications in the British Museum Library came to an abrupt halt in 1886 when the Treasury grant for foreign and antiquarian acquisitions was suddenly reduced by 40%, down to 6,000 pounds from the level of 10,000 that had been in force almost miraculously, it's, miraculously, it seems to me, for 40 long years. This decisive reduction dealt a double blow to American intake, for because some United States books were received still on copyright, the library authorities, I think quite understandably, concentrated their much reduced foreign purchases in other countries from which, naturally, no publications were received through copyright. By an odd trick of fate, this lamentable year, 1886, was also, alas, the year of Henry Stevens's death. After the drastic 1886 cut in book funds, the library's American collections grew steadily weaker. On the 10th of May, 1941, they were dramatically weakened still further when a canister of incendiary bombs pierced the glass roof and hit one of the four main stacks. Between 200 and 250,000 volumes were destroyed by fire or water, including at least 9,000 volumes of American publications. Until the advent of the American Trust, it had been possible to, re to replace only about one-third of these. From the low point of the World War II years, when books were destroyed by enemy action and when the total acquisitions appropriation for the British Museum Library in each of the four years from 1941 to 1945 was only 3,000 pounds, there has been noteworthy and steady progress. In 1946, just after the war, the appropriation for purchases again reached 10,000 pounds for the first time since 1886. By 1982-83, 
the acquisitions budget of the British Library Reference Division alone, which includes, of course, what was the old British Museum Library, reached 3.34 million pounds with copyright deposit in addition valued at about a million. Thus the total was about, uh, the total was about four and three quarters million pounds last year. The library now has the funds to maintain a strong collection of current American publications. But this is not, of course, a solution to the problems of filling the gaps left by these 70 lean years. In addition to adequate funds, building collections for a research library requires a sound acquisitions policy and a competent staff. In 1961, the British Museum Library decided to strengthen its American holdings on a systematic basis. And Ian Willison, of whom you heard a moment ago, was appointed to be the first book selector specifically responsible for American publications. His well-known article on the history of the United States collections in the museum appeared in 1967, most appropriately as the first article in the first issue of the Journal of American Studies, the new publication of the British Association for American Studies that is now a thriving quarterly. This thoughtful history of the growth of the American collections and the statement of policies that should govern their development may be said to mark the beginning of the present concern for redressing the deficiencies in the library's holdings. Two years ago, the library broadened its interest by establishing an English language branch to be responsible for the development of a national printed archive. Again, Ian Willison, now deputy keeper in the Department of Printed Books, was named to head this new section of the library. The National Printed Archive will consist of all books and pamphlets published in the English language anywhere in the world since 1500. To attain this lofty purpose, much retrospective acquisitions must necessarily be made, and it is to discuss this um, the global concept of the National Printed Archive that Ian will be discussing here two weeks from tonight. London, as it has been for centuries, is still a center to which students and scholars gravitate from all over the world. The marvelously rich resources of the British Library are for many the principal attraction. For those interested in the history of the United States and its society and culture, many of whom may never reach this country, it is important that the American collections in the library be capable of sustaining broad research in their field. In spite of the serious gaps in the American holdings I have earlier described, the British Library is nonetheless far and away the greatest resource for American study research outside this country. It is of prime concern to the United States as well as to Britain herself that the weaknesses in this 70-year period be redressed to the fullest extent possible, for these were, of course, among the most significant decades in American history. What now of this new organization, the American Trust for the British Library? Its history may fairly be said to have begun in the spring of 1978, when Viscount Eccles, 
then chairman of the British Library Board, indeed its first chairman after the creation of the British Library, and his friend Arthur A. Houghton, Jr., first discussed the need to reinforce the retrospective American holdings in the library. In December of that year, an informal conference was, was held at Y Plantation, the home of, the, of Mr. Houghton's home in Maryland. From London came Lord Eccles, Sir Harry Hookway, Vice Chairman of the British Library Board, D.T. Original, whom many of you know, then Director General of the Reference Division of the British Library, and since succeeded by Alec Wilson, and Ian Willison. Mr. Houghton, James Nelson, and I completed the company. After two days' deliberation, it was decided to proceed with the creation of the trust. With typical understanding and generosity, Arthur Houghton underwrote the administrative costs of launching the trust and sustaining it through its organizational period. By April of 1979, the trust was incorporated as a tax-exempt public organization, and actual operation commenced in August. The board, comprised initially of five, five founders, has grown to ten devoted and active trustees under the chairmanship of Arthur Houghton. A distinguished advisory council under the chairmanship of Gordon Ray, numbering 27 members, was formed early on and is a constant encouragement. Since the establishment of the trust, 660 subscriptions have been received from individuals across the United States who have become associates or affiliates. And here I should point out that the subscriptions uh, made by these individuals are expended exclusively for acquisitions, for the purchase of books and other materials that are needed in the library. The charter of the trust is so broadly drawn as to permit it to collaborate with the British Library in a very wide variety of activity, such as issuing publications based on American materials in the library, extending information services to make these collections more available and more useful to students and scholars as well as the general public, and convening professional conferences to make better known these resources for American studies. For the present, however, our energies are concentrated on the initial task of raising $5 million for the purchase of an estimated 200,000 volumes needed to redress the major weaknesses from the 1880s to the 1950s and to complete the replacement of American materials lost in the last war. The first, the first support for the work of the Trust was a grant to the British Library of approximately $120,000 by the Leverhulme Trust in London. This grant financed appointments for two years of a special research officer in Americana and a bibliographic assistant who commenced the complex and necessarily lengthy task of compiling lists of specific materials to be purchased. Thus far, the fundraising effort has produced nearly $1.2 million. Approximately 800 of this amount has come from 15 general and corporate foundations. $300,000 from individuals, and the balance largely from income on invested funds. In the four years of the Trust's life, close and efficient operating procedures have evolved between the British Library and the ATBL office in Cambridge. <clears throat> A fundamental tenet of the collaborative enterprise 
is that the choice of materials to be acquired is made by the staff of the library in London, and generally the library's regular ordering procedures are followed. In a number of instances, however, special arrangements are negotiated on this side, such as agreement with American research libraries for specific microfilming projects and with microform publishers for preferential pricing rates. One such project has been worked out with the New York Public Library for the filming of American books still missing from the British Library as a result of the war damage, the 6,000 volumes. In 1981, the Mellon Foundation granted the Trust $125,000 specifically for the microfilm replacement of these volumes. The filming, to extend over five years, is proceeding on a regular schedule devised for this project. A further agreement was reached with the Harvard Library for microfilming books on the list that are not in the New York collection, and Harvard is also producing copies of historical works on a continuing basis. Inasmuch as con considerable future funding appears likely to be forthcoming for the provision of research materials in particular subjects, it will be necessary to make arrangements with American libraries with special collections of distinction. Recently, for example, the Wolfson Foundation in England made a grant of 10,000 pounds for the acquisition of American publications in the field of Judaica. Discussions are now underway among the librarian of the Jewish Theological Seminary here in New York, the head of the Hebrew section in the British Library, and myself, toward developing a program for augmenting the British Library holdings in this field. And uh, if I read the tea leaves correctly, this is going to be repeated over and over in various subject fields. Two points remain, I think, to be touched upon. One of the intriguing and valuable assets of the work of the American Trust is the double duty, so to speak, that it is performing. A very large proportion of the material to be provided will have to be uh, forthcoming in some form of facsimile, mainly microfilms, which will have to be produced in American libraries. Since the master negatives will remain with the owning libraries and appropriate entries will be incorporated in the National Bibliographic Database, other libraries will be aware that they can readily purchase, and at reasonable cost, copies for their own collections, either as additions or to replace their own worn-out copies. Thus, the work for the British Library contributes to the vast national effort in this country for preserving books, journals, and newspapers printed in the last 150 years, which, as we all know, are disintegrating steadily. Another interesting benefit that has derived from the establishment of the Trust is the stimulation it has provided to the body of British scholars working in American studies. The Trust is a welcome addition to this academic discipline, which I think it fair to say only in recent years has become a respected discipline in Britain after starting very nearly from scratch 30 years ago as I had something to do with this just those 30 years ago, I, I can say that uh, the, the interest in American studies in Britain was very nearly nil until, uh, let us say, 1950. And it is only since then that uh, it has grown to, as I say, to be a respectable, um, have a respectable place in universities and schools. And that it certainly does have now. In July of 1982, the British Association of American Studies, 
the British Library, and the Librarian's Advisory Committee on American Studies jointly sponsored a colloquium in London which brought together scholars in various aspects of the field of American Studies and their counterparts in the library. These fruitful deliberations, in which I took an active part, were, so far as I know, the first of their kind held in Britain. It's by now, I, I like to think, at least a commonplace in American university libraries and American libraries perhaps generally, that the librarians worked uh, in tandem with their academic counterparts for the, clearly for the mutual benefit. And this is, however, I believe, a quite new um, concept in, in England. And it's one that is now being followed up with subsequent conferences. The results of, the, of these meetings will be helpful to librarians in the British Library, I dare say in other libraries in Britain as well, in their efforts to provide the most useful research materials for students and scholars studying American themes. Following this colloquium, a committee was formed of specialists working with American newspapers to advise the British Library on the acquisition of retrospective files, a matter of very close interest since the American newspapers published in the 70-year period of our concentration form a major part of the Trust's effort. We, we estimate actually that of the $5 million we're raising initially, something like a quarter will be required to provide the necessary newspaper files. And next month, in the same uh, line, there is to be a conference at the American Embassy in London in which, again, both scholars and librarians will meet to discuss resources for research in American studies throughout Great Britain. Finally, let me mention some of the kinds of publication that have so far been sent to the British Library. Files of 92 scholarly journals, 81 in medicine, 11 in architecture. In both those cases, the, the funds were, were uh, made available to the trust by, uh, by um, uh, individuals and foundations primarily concerned for those two subject fields. Three major newspaper files have been sent. And here I am glad to mention a, a happy catalytic side effect that the Trust is having. As the Trust provides runs of journals and newspapers falling within its 70-year span, the, library per the British Library purchases on its own account the remainder of the files published before 1880 or after 1950. About 800 monographs have been acquired, most of them in microform, in history and literature, medicine, Judaica, and technology. In addition, 35 literary first editions have been purchased in their original format. Some 1,400 microfilm replacements for the volumes lost in the last war have been produced at the New York Public and Harvard Libraries. Two major reference works have been sent, the Historic American Building Survey and the Publishers' Trade List Annual from 1903 to 1963. A wide variety of archival collections has been bought from the U.S. National Archives, including such materials as the records of the Joint Chiefs of Staff from 1942 to 1953, the Manhattan Project, and the American Commission to Negotiate Peace. These acquisitions for the British Library constitute the beginning of a record that I believe would have pleased our lively progenitor, Henry Stevens, the Green Mountain Boy. Thank you.